Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. going to be talking about this week is one I had never heard before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I stumbled across this case from an Australian 60 Minutes episode and I just had to dig deeper into this. At first I was like, okay. Then I was like, what the fuck? And by the end of the episode, I knew I had to do an episode on it. So let's just go. Let's just get into it, okay? Sydney, Australia, May 20th, 2014, a 20-year-old man named Jamie Gao arrives at a storage unit to make a drug deal. Jamie was selling 2.78 kg, so just under 3 kgs, of methamphetamines to two men who were meeting him in one of these units. And Jamie, he went in, but he never made it out alive. The men he was meeting shot him dead and stole the drugs. Luckily, though, there were cameras and they captured everything. They captured Jamie entering the storage unit with a guy. So initially he enters with with one guy, then another man entering the unit a few minutes later. A half hour later, the camera showed two men leaving the unit. Not three, two. Two men leaving the unit with a large, heavy surfboard bag that they loaded into the back of their car. Six days later, Jamie's body was discovered in water wrapped in tarp in Cronulla, which is a suburb of Sydney. So three men went into the unit, and a half hour later, two men and a surfboard bag, which looked very heavy, came out of the unit. I think we all know, it's safe to say it was Jamie's body in that bag. You would think this is a pretty open and shut case, But this is just the tip of the iceberg, a very large iceberg. So now we're going to go back 33 years earlier. We're going back into the past here, 33 years. Same city, which is Sydney, Australia, June 27th, 1981, 33 years earlier. A man named Warren Lenfranchi, he shoved $10,000 down his pants, kissed his girlfriend goodbye, and told her if he's not back by six o'clock, he's been killed. And then he left his apartment unarmed to meet up with a heroin dealer. As he was leaving, his girlfriend asked, you know, can you bring me back some flowers? And he replied, darling, it might be you sending me flowers. It's important to note that Warren was unarmed. He did not have a weapon on him. Warren did not bring his gun to this meeting. And we know this because his girlfriend knew that Warren had a gun and she knew that he had left it at home to do this deal, this transaction. And by six o'clock that night, he wasn't back. Warren never came home that night because he was shot dead by a police officer named Roger Rogerson. Officer Rogerson was the heroin dealer Warren was meeting with. Not undercover, no, not undercover at all, okay? If you're thinking, oh, maybe it was an undercover officer, blah, 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 things went wrong. No, 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 no. And alongside Officer Rogerson were multiple other police officers, and this was in broad daylight. When Warren walked up to Officer Rogerson, he shot Warren once, and then when Warren was on the ground, he shot him a second time in the head, in the light of day, in broad fucking daylight with multiple other officers and witnesses around. This was a Saturday afternoon, bright as fuck outside, and Officer Rogerson was just like, boom, boom. I give a pause there because there was... We're going to talk about that later. There was there was a pause in between the shots. Officer Rogerson claimed he acted in self-defense and the other officers vouched for this and said Warren pulled a gun first. A gun he didn't have. A gun that was found to be 80 years old and didn't work. I don't know and I'm just spitballing here, but 
Perhaps the police planted that gun on Warren's body after they killed him because uh, that doesn't make sense. And, um, well, this bullshit, it almost held up if it wasn't for Sally Ann Huckstep. How could this happen with multiple officers present? And why is this officer also a heroin dealer? And why are all the officers who were witnessing this, why are they all lying? Sally Ann, she knew the truth and she was about to drop a huge bomb on the public. Sally Ann was Warren's girlfriend and they were thick as thieves. She loved Warren so much and she just wanted justice. And to do that, the truth needed to come out no matter the cost. Warren was known to police for theft um, and, and dealing heroin, not on a large scale by any means, but he, he pushed some product to make a living. Sally Ann was known to police as a heroin user and a sex worker, but to me and a lot of other people, Sally Ann is known as a badass bitch who threw caution to the wind to avenge her lover's death. She is smart, incredibly brave, and absolutely stunning. Oh, in the interview I watched of her, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. Her skin is just glowing. She has these beautiful emerald green eyes. She's just absolutely stunning. And the whole time she's just smoking cigarettes and just beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. And Sally Ann, she's no pushover. She had been making her own way in life since she was 13 years old when she ran away from her private school life in a very nice neighborhood in Sydney. She came from, I don't want to say wealth, but she came from well-off parents. Um, she was educated, but academics, they couldn't feed her wild side. She wanted more from life, and she sure found it. Also, around the time that she ran away from home, her parents were divorcing. And from what I read, I don't think she got along with her father very well. And I believe he was the primary caregiver to her and her sister when her mother and father divorced. So there was um, there was some turbulence in the family and she wanted to get away. So 13 years old, she just ran away. When she was 14 years old, she was waitressing at a popular Sydney bar called Whiskey A Go Go. That's right, 14 years old and working at a bar. Mm, times have changed. I, uh, I can't even picture a 14-year-old working at a bar. But there she was, and um, yeah, she was doing the damn thing. When she was 16 years old, uh, she met Brian Huckstep. Brian got Sally Ann into sex work in King's Cross. For those of you who don't know, King's Cross is a very dodgy, dangerous area of Sydney. I've been there. McDonald's doesn't even have bathrooms because the heroin problem is, is it's pretty bad and they can't have bathrooms because people would be shooting up in them. And um, from what I hear, this current day of King's Cross is a huge step up from what it was in the 70s and 80, 80s when Sally Ann was living there. Now, when she's 16 years old, she's now become a sex worker in King's Cross, which would have been incredibly dangerous. Brian, he, he had a heroin addiction and he thought that if Sally Ann was a sex worker, then she could supply him with money for heroin. But then Sally Ann also got addicted to heroin. And I don't know exactly when, but they did get married and they did have a baby. And by 1974, Sally Ann was 20 years old. Um, she had numerous arrests for prostitution. She was paying off cops, bribing police which is why some weeks she didn't get arrested and when she did get arrested the dirty cops would say stuff like oh well pay me five hundred dollars and all this will go away and then one day she was she was just getting sick of having to pay all these cops she was just like paying 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 all the time paying all these corrupt officers and one day she was at a bar and they saw her, that she had some needle marks on her arm and they just searched her bag and in that bag they claimed to have found heroin and 
uh, Sally, she didn't want to pay them anymore. So she refused to pay this guy. She didn't offer him a bribe. And then eventually in court, she did plead guilty to having drugs. But she claimed that it wasn't hers. So it is possible that she refused to pay and the drugs were planted on her. Or she actually did have the drugs and was targeted by a cop who thought he could make an easy $500, thought he could get a bribe. Because the police force at this time, it was rife with corruption in Sydney. And it was only getting worse. It was was bad. Sally Ann, she had been married uh, and now separated from her husband, Brian Huckstep. And they had a two-year-old little girl together. So she would have had her child when she was 18, I believe, 17, 18 years old. And her daughter was under the care of her husband's mother, of Brian's mother. Sally Ann hated that she was addicted to drugs and she tried desperately many times to get off them. She also wanted to stop being a sex worker, but she just kept getting sucked back into the the way of life. It was all she had ever known. It was how she knew how to survive. And she said she was actually encouraged by dirty cops to stay on the path she was on, that way they can keep taking bribes from her. So she's making them money. A year later in 1975, Sally Ann was arrested again, but this time for conspiracy to defraud a bank. And she was caught by police, but she not sentenced to any prison time. Instead, they released her on a three-year good behavior bond and ordered her to be admitted to a private hospital to get off heroin. Six weeks of torture later, Sally Ann was released from the private hospital and now she was completely addicted to barbiturates. Sally Ann describes the hospital as a nightmare. She said they sedated her so heavily she was basically in a coma. Then they would perform electric shock treatment on her and they did this treatment a lot. In fact, they did it 14 Out of 15 days, they put her through shock therapy, all the while keeping her heavily sedated and drugged out of her mind, feeding her through a tube. Sally Ann called her probation officer and pleaded with her to come get her because she said the hospital was trying to kill her. Sally Ann, she was released um, and she was skin and bone and she only weighed 30 kg or if you know pounds, 66 pounds. And I know she was over five feet tall. So you can imagine how thin she was. 66 pounds is the weight of a young child, not a full grown woman. Upon release, uh, the doctor wrote to the courts uh, recording saying that Sally Ann was no longer addicted to heroin and she was motivated about her future. So basically the doctor was saying, we've cured her and our 95% success rate of helping people get off drugs is held up and we did a good thing when in actuality they didn't. That was bullshit. She was now heavily addicted to barbiturates and still heroin and was completely malnourished and just further traumatized. The only thing that motivated her was to get the fuck out of that hospital. So five years goes by, we're going to jump ahead five years, and Sally Ann was, she was in the thick of her addictions. She was injecting up to five grams of heroin per day by the time she checked herself into a detox clinic and was discharged after seven days. It was no good, and Sally Ann went back to using heroin and barbiturates. Sometime between 1980 and 1981, she met and fell in love with Warren Lenfranchi, and he tried to help her get off heroin, and from what I understand, he may have succeeded for a little while. As for the barbiturates, I'm unsure of. I think she could have possibly been uh, using those still. They met through Sally Ann's line of work, but He was different from her regular clients. She was attracted to him. He brought her roses and he had a plan to get them fake passports, which is very romantic. And he wanted them to go live abroad in a place where they could start new, um, have these new lives together under new identities. He wanted a fresh start and he wanted them to have that together. Uh, But in the meantime, they led this dangerous, wild life in love with each other. As much as Sally Ann hated her work and her addictions, she felt at home in the underworld and the chaos. One time she told her probation officer 
that the underworld excites her as much as heroin did the first time she used. So just days after Warren Lenfranchi was shot dead by Officer Rogerson, Sally Ann contacted journalists and made her way into the homes of every Australian by appearing in a tell-all 60 Minutes interview, which aired on Sunday, July 5th, 1981. What she was about to expose not only was going to shock the nation, but also put her own life at risk. In this interview, she says that for years... Her and many other criminals have been paying police, specifically Officer Rogerson, to allow them to conduct illegal business. But not only that, but Officer Rogerson is the most evil and feared heroin supplier in Sydney. She tells them that he supplied heroin to Parramatta Prison. He supplied heroin to a lot of street sellers. He took bribes from all the criminals. He is mean and vicious and corrupt. She says a lot of people have disappeared because of him, possibly murdered, and he is known to be a killer. That's his reputation. He's a killer and people fear him. She says the most hardened criminals are scared of this guy. She got her message out there that Officer Rogerson murdered her boyfriend, Warren Lynn in broad daylight and she thinks that he thinks he can get away with it most likely because he has gotten away with it before. What she is saying is that the New South Wales Police Department is deeply corrupted. She was saying that the New South Wales Police Drug Squad was selling and supplying heroin to the streets. She was saying bribes are demanded and accepted by the police to overlook criminal activity. She was saying Officer Rogerson is a murderer, possibly multiple times over. And also police were in on setting up robberies. Sally Ann states that Officer Rogerson killed Warren because Warren had previously stole $37,000 worth of heroin from a dealer, and that dealer was working for Roger Rogerson. Warren had no idea the heroin belonged to Rogerson when he stole it, and he didn't really care about whose it was until they found out that it was Officer Rogerson's. Then they were terrified that they were going to be murdered. They slept with weapons. They went into hiding. uh, But eventually they struck a deal with Rogerson through Warren's criminal boss, Nettie Smith. Nettie Smith, he's a mean motherfucker. His rap sheet involves armed robbery, heroin trafficking, murder, and rape. In fact, the reason Nettie and Warren know each other is because they met in prison years earlier, and somehow Nettie is working closely with Officer Rogerson. Nettie tells Warren, hey man, pay back Rogerson. We've got an, we've got a plan for you. He says he wants 10 grand up front right now, then he is going to hook you up with an inside job on a robbery that you can do, and from that robbery you're going to pay him the rest of the money you owe him, which I believe was $20,000, because he wasn't asking for $37,000, he was asking for $30,000. So he wanted 10 grand now up front, then he was going to hook him up with this robbery that Warren was going to do, and then pay Rogerson $20,000 from that, plus give Officer Rogerson a cut from whatever he robbed. So if it was a bank or whatever, Officer Rogerson wanted his money back plus a cut, a percentage, like a a percentage of however much Warren got away with from the robbery. The reason Warren was meeting Roger, Officer Rogerson that day, he was shot dead, was to pay him an installment of the money that he owed. And that's why Sally Ann is pissed off because they were paying Officer Roger Rogerson they were paying him back for the heroin that Warren had stole and Roger still killed Warren. The underworld rules were broken and for that she was exposing Roger to bring him down. The gloves were off, there were no more rules and she was just going to do the damn thing. Sally Ann, she would she said she would have been happy to keep paying the bribes and, and also the money they owed Officer Rogerson to continue living the way they were doing, like doing what they were doing because it was a way of life. It was how they survived is how she explains it. But with the love of her life dead, she doesn't give a fuck anymore. 
what she is doing is incredibly dangerous and yet she goes through the interview effortlessly and stoic. The way she speaks, you can just tell she's educated. She's so articulate and graceful. Yet she's talking about her boyfriend being murdered by a police officer who supplies the prison and basically all of Sydney with heroin. And it's pretty heavy stuff. After that interview, she takes her information to Internal Affairs and they launch an investigation on the police force for corruption. The nation was shocked. People were just staring at their televisions with wide eyes. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They were thinking, there is no way our police force is that corrupt. But she wasn't lying. Everything she said was true. This corruption case was blowing up and the nation was watching and the evidence was all there. This corruption had been going on for so long in the New South Wales police force and internal affairs. They had no idea how deep it was. They didn't know who was involved in this. They didn't know who was dirty, who was clean. They had no idea. So during Officer Roger Rogerson's inquest for the killing of Warren Lanfranchi, the coroner stated, and I don't know if this coroner was paid or not. I mean, everything was pretty bribey around this time. So the coroner stated that his findings were that uh, Rogerson acted in self-defense. But that doesn't make sense to me because why shoot a man in the head after you have already shot him? Um... I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not the only one who thought that to be strange because the jury also didn't agree it was in self-defense. I believe they did agree that he was acting in the line of duty and he had to do whatever, but they didn't agree it was self-defense and this all seemed kind of muddled. Uh, but two witnesses, two civilian witnesses who were in the area the day Warren was killed told the court that the gunshots they heard were not one after another. It wasn't bang, bang. They were about 13 seconds apart. But Officer Rogerson was saying he acted swiftly in self-defense and fired the shots one after another, which it wasn't true at all. Yet nothing happened to Roger Rogerson over the killing of Warren Lanfranchi. Officer Roger Rogerson was an established member of the police force. He had been awarded 13 awards and was even possibly on his way to becoming police commissioner, which is just fucking wild because he was a very bad, corrupt man. How does someone so terrible move so seamlessly through the system? Not just through it, but in it. He is it. Uh, it's just wild and he's getting rewarded for his good work which is actually terrible fucking work and the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing how does he have all these people fooled let's talk about a couple years later up until 1984 officer rogerson was able to bribe all other officers around him and corrupt them as well but then one day he met a man he couldn't corrupt Undercover detective Mick Drury. This guy, he was not for sale and Rogerson hated that he couldn't buy his morals. In fact, he hated it so much that when Mick Drury refused to take a bribe from Rogerson for allowing evidence tampering for a heroin trafficking trial, he almost paid with his life. Mick Drury was like, I'm not going to tamper with no evidence. Like, get the fuck out of here. Fuck out of here, man. It's probably exactly what he said. <laughs> June 6, 1984. Mick Drury was in his home with his three-year-old child, three-year-old child, when he was shot through his window and almost died. But he didn't die. He survived. And who did they think was responsible for this attempted murder? Yeah, you guessed it. Officer Roger Rogerson. But he didn't act alone. Allegedly, he hired a hitman named Mr. Rentikill, real name Christopher Flannery. 
This guy was dangerous. His pastimes include assault, rape, armed robbery, and multiple murders. It came out in court that Rogerson offered Mr. Rentakill $50,000 to kill Mick Drury. But again, Roger Rogerson faced no prison time for this, but he was suspended from the police force and then later dismissed, two years later, in 1986 for police misconduct, which meant he wasn't a cop anymore and the end of the corrupted police force was nearing an end. Internal affairs were cleaning house. They were finding shit out. They were cleaning house. Two months before he was fired, Something happened. Something Sally Ann Huckstep predicted in her 1981 interview with 60 Minutes. February 6, 1986, 10.55 p.m. Sally Ann receives a phone call from a man named Warren Richards, and she rushes out to meet him for whatever reason. It is possible Sally Ann was dealing or buying heroin from him, so maybe they met up you know, in regards to something about that. Whatever was supposed to happen did not happen. Sally Ann Huckstep, the woman who blew the whistle nationally on police corruption, was strangled and drowned. The next day, her body was discovered floating in a lake in Centennial Park. Sally Ann had been murdered. I think we all know who's behind this. Roger Rogerson was interviewed by the media and he says he was shocked to hear that Sally Ann had been murdered. He also says the only reason the media ever listened to her was because she was pretty. So obviously he's still holding a grudge. Then he says something so outrageous and disgusting. It shows his character in a huge way. He says she was really just a typical common prostitute. That is fucked up. He's basically saying, why is anyone listening to her or even caring that she died? She was just a prostitute. What the fuck? That is horrendous. And for some reason, he says that to a news crew. That's going, it aired on TV. Everyone saw this. The fact he thinks like that is fucking terrible. But the fact he feels no need to hide his evil side, that's terrifying. That's how far from being a decent human being he is. Police didn't seem to investigate this um, like they should have. They did, however, have a suspect in mind, and that was Nettie Smith the man who worked for none other than Roger Rogerson. 1996, he was charged with murdering Sally Ann, but the charge never stuck. The thing is, though, police had a confession from him. They had secretly recorded him telling another inmate when he was in prison about killing Sally Ann. This recording was terrible it was volatile it was horrendous I didn't hear it but in the 60 minutes episode I watched they touch on the details in the recording and Nettie described snapping her neck he says he wasn't sure if she was dead when he threw her in the water uh he sounded very joyous I guess when he was talking about murdering a woman with his bare hands he also said it was the best thing he had ever done Uh, And he seemed to get pleasure from doing this horrific thing, from murdering this helpless woman for snapping her neck, throwing her body in a pond, and leaving her for dead. To me, this is very sadistic tendencies. And yeah, he was not a good man. It is entirely possible but not ever proven that Nettie Smith killed Sally Ann because Rogerson told him to. Because Nettie being a criminal and Rogerson being a corrupt cop, they probably had a lot to hold over Nettie or possibly even paid him to kill Sally Ann. But my guess is they had struck a deal with Nettie being dirty cops. They had probably been like, okay, well, we're not going to charge you for this murder, which we can prove you did. But when we ask for anything, no matter what it is, you have to do it. Otherwise, guess what? We're going to expose you for this murder or that drug trafficking or X, Y, Z. 
the person who was who the and the person who had the most reason to kill Sally Ann is of course Roger Rogerson and he even told her once you're out of the spotlight you're dead he didn't say those exact words I can't remember his exact words but that's basically what it meant because after Sally had gone on 60 minutes everybody was watching her they had offered her I think she became a writer and she was writing a book on this and she was all over the news she was in the spotlight so Roger Rogerson knew that he couldn't just kill her then or obviously that would be very suspicious instead he waits what five years waits for everything to calm down and then puts a hit on her Sally Ann knew going public would eventually mean her demise by the hands of the corrupt police. She knew that and she did it anyways. She said she wasn't doing it just for herself. She was doing it for all the other people affected by these corrupt police. All the people who suffered from them. Girl, she was getting justice. As Sally Ann would say, it doesn't matter if you're a thief or a heroin addict or a prostitute. Everyone deserves justice. Nettie Smith was looked into for committing around 14 murders. Out of those 14, he was convicted of two. But for the murder of Sally Ann, he was found not guilty in 1996. But still, he got two life sentences and he will never leave prison. So he's locked up for good from what I hear, he's not doing too well as of present day. Last I heard, um, yeah, and last I heard, he had been in prison for over 30 years and his health was declining rapidly. I believe he is in very poor health and was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So that is one killer. And he's a vicious fucking killer. Like he is a rapist. He's a murderer. He is a terrible, terrible, terrible man. Um, and he's going to die in prison. Sally Ann's murder, though, it remains unsolved in the eyes of the law. But the New South Wales police commissioner today, like who the police commissioner is today, he's convinced that they got the guy who did it, that being Nettie Smith. There, He's like, no, you know what? We got the guy who, he doesn't say Nettie Smith's name, but he says, we're convinced we got the guy who did it. He is locked up for life, but not for Sally Ann's murder. For that, they never got justice for. But he strongly believes the person responsible for that, who actually did the act, is gonna die in prison Nettie Smith would have had no reason to kill Sally Ann for his own agenda um so this reeks of a hired hit and the person who had the biggest score to settle with her was Roger Rogerson so I mean I think we can piece together what happened there let's go back to the Jamie Gow murder in 2014 in 2014 ex-police officer Roger Rogerson he was still a free man, and yes, he was still in the drug game. He just didn't carry a badge, but it's possible he still totally carried a gun. If you haven't guessed it by now, one of the men seen entering the storage unit that Jamie was shot dead in was Roger Rogerson. Yep, he's still going for it. He was the man seen entering 3 minutes and 19 seconds after the first two men entered the storage unit and this was all caught on cctv the other man seen on camera was another ex-police officer 57 year old glenn mcnamara the two were arrested and charged with the murder of 20 year old jamie gow and this time there was no corrupt officers to save them by 2014 in sydney the new south wales police department had been cleaned out and as far as I know, as far as I know, there's no corruption going on or in 2014. By this time, Rogerson himself in 2014, he was 75 years old and he was still pulling this shit. When he was arrested from his home, he looked like a nice old man. It was hard to believe I was looking at one of the most corrupt, evil, vile men to ever work on the Australian police force. He walked with a hobble. He walked with a hobble. He has gray hair. He's not putting up a fight. He is calm, almost smiling as he is handcuffed and put into the back of a police car. Like this man could be your grandpa. That's what it looks like. I mean, 75-year-old grandpa. That's what he looks like. 
The corrupt life on the police force had earned Roger Rogerson a nickname. And that nickname is Roger the Dodger. And when old Roger was faced with a murder charge, he tried to uphold his nickname and dodge the charge by blaming Glenn McNamara for shooting Jamie. Roger says Glenn contacted him that day to come with him to the storage unit as Glenn was writing a true crime novel on Asian triad gangs and Jamie was going to provide information for his book. You see, both Glenn and Roger had become true crime writers and Roger had actually written and published a book about his life living in a like working in 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 a corrupt police department but I would take everything in that book with a grain of salt why is he just gonna write a guilty admission book and have it published while he's I don't know alive I don't know doesn't make sense so yeah I don't believe anything in that book Roger says Jamie was already on the floor and shot dead by the time he entered the unit. And he said he wanted to go to police because Glenn had to shoot Jamie in self-defense. A tale as old as time for old Roger the Dodger, as we heard in the Warren Lenfranchi situation. He explains that Glenn wouldn't allow him to go to police because Glenn said that Chinese assassins would show up and shoot the storage unit, presumably while the murder was being investigated maybe, and therefore putting police officers' lives at risk. So Roger said he just agreed to help discard of the body. So what the fuck is this story? This doesn't track at all. How does this make any sense? He's saying it went like this. Oh shit, you killed the person. And Glenn's saying, I had to. He was going to kill me. And then Roger was like, okay, let's go to police right now. And then Glenn said, we can't because a gang of Chinese assassins will show up here and shoot up the place. And then Roger was just like, you're right, Glenn. The right thing to do is to dump the body and try to put this behind us and tell no one. And then the two high five and load the body into the car in a surfboard bag, go to the hardware store, do all their shit, XYZ, dump the body in the water. Not taking into account the fact there are cameras everywhere. I'm going to talk more about that XYZ, okay? Oh, and also, the two are spotted on another camera at a hardware store buying stuff together to dispose of the body, and then again on cameras in Glenn's apartment building with a six-pack of beer after a long day of murder and drug theft. What was Glenn saying in court, though? Glenn, he had a different story. He says that Roger shot Jamie after an argument broke out about money and drugs. And then Glenn helped Roger dump the body because Roger threatened the lives of Glenn's daughters if he didn't help. Which, to me, this makes sense. Just knowing Roger's past, this tracks. But do I think Glenn is a victim here? No fucking way. What really makes me think this was planned is that the car that Rogerson and Glenn used, the car that Glenn drove up there with to the storage unit with, that car, it was bought by both of them a month earlier under fake names. And when that car was searched, the police found the 2.78 kg of methamphetamines they had stolen from Jamie in that car. So they buy this car under fake names, do this murder, do this drug heist, but they're like, no, this wasn't planned and it was an accident. Oh, okay, well, there's definitely premeditation here, so yeah. Out of curiosity, I wondered how much they were going to gain from killing a man and and stealing the methamphetamines because they can't possibly make that much money from less than three kgs of meth. So I looked it up and now for sure I know I'm on a watch list somewhere because I googled. I was very specific in my google search. I said uh, how much is 2.78 kg of meth worth? (laughs) 
which I really didn't want to do, but I did it anyways. I really did not want to type that into my Google search, but I did it. And the answer I got, it really sucked and made it just not worth it even more. Um, And I read that one kg of methamphetamine can be worth anywhere from $2,500 to $120,000, which seems like a very dramatic difference and didn't really offer me any insight into how much that they were going to make from this meth but let's just say they were going to bulk sell it they don't peg me as nickel and dime kind of guys you know I think they're going to bulk sell it and then have someone else sell it by the gram or however the fuck they sell meth um and my math which I mean okay hear me out they couldn't possibly make more than 10 grand on that um then they would have to split that so five grand each And then they bought that car together, which was probably like, I don't know, three or four grand. So what? They're each going to make three grand and have to kill a man and dump the body for it and like cover up a murder all for three grand each? Like, are they really hurting that bad or do they just fucking love being part of this like murder drug world that they're like, basically, I do it for free, you know? I just in it for the thrill. Or... Did they think Jamie was bringing more drugs? Hmm? Is there more to the story we don't know about? In court, Jamie's cousin, Justin Gao, said that Jamie had been having previous meetings with a man Jamie referred to as Glenn. Didn't even use a code name there, did you, Glenn? Yeah, and Jamie spoke to his cousin, Justin. He told Justin that he was preparing to do a massive drug deal that was going to make him rich. So this leads me to believe either the deal was larger than the 2.87 kg that was discovered and Glennon Rogerson had hidden the rest or, I don't know, sold it off to somebody like quickly like that day or something. I don't know. So that's why it was that more drugs weren't found on them. Or maybe Glennon Rogerson thought Jamie had more drugs on him than he actually did. I'm not sure. But the night before Jamie was murdered, he is seen on CCTV with Glenn at a bar by the pool table talking for a few minutes, shaking hands, and then parting ways. This was one of their 27 meetups they had previously. That sounds like a business transaction to me. The next day at the storage unit, the CCTV footage shows Glenn and Jamie entering the storage unit and it appears like Glenn is trying to hide Jamie. Like he's kind of standing over him and kind of shuttles him into the storage unit because Glenn like parked his car really close to where the slider door rolls up, but CCTV caught everything. And Glenn himself, he looks like a shady motherfucker. He is, he looks like he's trying to conceal his identity. He's wearing a hoodie. Okay, he's wearing a baseball cap. Then over top of the baseball cap, he's wearing a hoodie that's like pulled down pretty far around his face. He's wearing sunglasses. Um, Yeah, he looks very sus. Three minutes and 19 seconds later, Rogerson enters the storage unit. Then he leaves the unit, pulls his car up in front of Glenn's car, and pulls out a surfboard bag and brings that into the unit. Why is this man in his 70s carrying around a surfboard bag in the trunk of his car, who I'm assuming doesn't surf? He doesn't look like he's in that great of physical shape. Um, I'm just, yeah, assuming he doesn't surf. And to me, that screams premeditation. He brought a bag big enough to put a human body in, but also inconspicuous enough because it's in Sydney. There is surf there. There's a lot of surfers there. A surfboard bag is a pretty common bag to see. So it's pretty inconspicuous. But at the same time, it holds a, it could hold a body easily and he doesn't surf. Why the fuck does he even have this in the trunk of his car? Don't tell me this wasn't premeditated. Anyways, a half hour after they had been in that storage unit, they are seen coming out of the storage unit, the two men, Glenn and Rogerson, come out. And that surfboard bag, it looks very heavy. And they are seen loading it into the car that Glenn had drove up in. Two hours later, Glenn and Roger are seen on CCTV 
at a hardware store buying supplies to discard of Jamie's body. Two hours after that, they then head over to Glenn's apartment with an icy cold six-pack of beer. Also at Glenn's apartment building is where Glenn keeps his boat, and it is believed that in this time frame before they are seen with that six-pack of beer in the elevator camera that they had just loaded Jamie's body onto Glenn's boat. Because the next morning at 7.30 a.m., Glenn and Roger are seen again on the CCTV footage leaving Glenn's apartment building with the boat and fishing rods as if they're going on this best friend's fishing trip. But really what they did was they wrapped Jamie's body up in a tarp, went out on, I'm pretty sure it was the ocean, and threw him over and threw him overboard into the sea. Four days after Jamie was murdered but was still known as missing to police, the police, they're on to Glenn and Rogers. Um, and they secretly tow Glenn's car out from the apartment building parking and they search it. And guess what they find under the seat? Yes, 2.878 kgs of methamphetamine. A day after that, Glenn and Rogers are arrested for the drugs and the murder. But I don't know how they knew Jamie had been murdered because his body wasn't discovered until the next day. Police must have used some fortune telling or something because I don't know how they knew that it, how all this had happened. I don't know how that they pieced this together so fast, made the arrest so fast, towed his car. How, 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 just how? Well, to answer that how, I have another theory. That day uh, that Jamie met Glenn and Roger at the storage unit, Jamie had arrived there in his car with two men and both those men who were never named They fled the country after Jamie was killed, but before Jamie's body was discovered. So it's possible those men were working with police, like informants or something. Both Glenn McNamara and Roger Rogerson pled not guilty. But in 2016, when all that CCTV evidence was shown in court, they were both found guilty of murder of Jamie Gow, and they were sentenced to life in prison. In 2020, Roger Rogerson appealed, but no luck. As far as I know, he is still alive and living in prison at the age of 81 now. It's fair to say he will never be released and he will die locked up. It took a long time to get him behind bars for good, but they finally got him when he slipped up in his fucking 70s. 70s. And that's old for a criminal. Like you, criminals don't usually have a very special, okay, ex-criminals, maybe. Criminals who are still active in their 70s, I find it wild that he's still alive because it's a very dangerous life to lead. And the fact that this man is in his 70s and he's like robbing and murdering 20-year-olds and doing this shit, like I'm surprised he hasn't been killed in his, you know, career criminal way of life. So the fact that he's like 81 now and still alive, it kind of blows my mind for like the terrible, horrible, corrupt, evil life that he lived. It's quite wild. We will never know all the terrible things he did in his life, but it's safe to say he is a terrible human being. Here's a quote from Sally Ann from her 1981 interview on 60 Minutes. When the police become judge, jury, and executioner, then somebody has to speak up. Somebody has to come forward. Somebody has to start somewhere and stop it. It took internal affairs and police a long time, but they finally stopped Roger Rogerson. After Sally Ann appeared on that 60 Minutes interview exposing a corrupt police force, she was offered a deal to become a, a journalist and write a book on it. Unfortunately, that book was never written. I don't know if she started it. I don't know how far she got on it, but it was never published, I should say. I wasn't able to locate this book. Sally Ann's daughter, Remember, she had a daughter. Uh, Sasha Huckstep is now 49 years old. She was 12 years old when her 32-year-old mother, Sally Ann Huckstep, was murdered. And by the time she was 16, Sasha was acting on TV. And from there, she continued a career in the entertainment industry. 
there was a TV show made called Blue Murder, and it was about the corruption of the police force in New South Wales, and it pretty accurately depicts the crimes of Roger Rogerson. And in that movie, Sasha was featured playing a nurse. She then became a casting consultant for movies, advertising, and television series. She she had a successful career. In 2008, she announced she was going to produce a movie about her mother's life. But as far as I know, it hasn't been made or at least released. I also looked for that and I couldn't find it. Sally Ann Huckstep will go down in history as the courageous woman who set the wheels in motion to take down a corrupt police force. This just shows us the power one person has to make a change. And also when it comes to journalism, when it's used for good, it can change lives. It can make the world a better place, which it's really easy to forget, especially these days. If she had never gone on to 60 Minutes and did that interview, who knows how long the corruption would have continued. Do I think there is no corruption nowadays in the police force in Australia? Well, I'm not an idiot. Of course, there might be, but nowhere near what was happening in and around King's Cross, Sydney in the 80s. That was a whole other level. It was wild. That was murder and cover-ups and hits and organized robberies and bribery and the drug squad selling drugs and it was anarchy and it, it was a, it was the police. The police were in on all of these things, all the murders, all the cover-ups, all the hits. I don't they weren't in on all of them, obviously, but they had their hands in many people's pockets. This concludes this week's episode. I have linked all my source information below, including the book written on this case called Huckstep, A Dangerous Life by John Dale. I did not read the book Roger Rogerson wrote, but it is called The Dark Side. And I would be lying if I said I wasn't at all interested in reading it, but I probably won't because he's a fucking monster and I don't want to support him in any way, shape, or form. Also, I'd imagine it's full of lies and I didn't want to dirty up my perception of this case. I didn't want to start throwing in a bunch of lies from a liar. I wanted to keep it clean. I wanted to find reliable sources and to me, he is so far from a reliable source. (laughs) So to Roger Rogerson, I say, hell no. I didn't even mention what a weird name he has. He basically has his first name twice with a son on the end. Not basically, that's what it is. I actually, I I had to double check that that was his real name when I first started researching this case because I found it so bizarre. I was like, maybe this has been changed to like hide his identity or whatever, And even if that was the case, I was like, that's hilarious that they chose that name. But no, that's his real name, Roger Rogerson. His parents must have been like, the Rogersons were like, we have this son. I wonder what we should name him. I know. I know what goes really well with Rogerson. Roger. So yeah, anyways. Please remember to follow, like, share, comment, review, hell no on whatever platform you are streaming on. And if you feel like it, please follow Hell No, a true crime podcast on Instagram. Hell No is on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Audible, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Overcast, Podbay, Piedvon. Pod, why can I never say that? Pod Vine. And I'm also trying to get it on Pod Bean. So I might not be on Anchor much longer as um, Anchor will not, um, I don't qualify to make money for ads on Anchor. You have to be living in America to do that, which I don't. So, and my, yeah, my podcast is growing and I might be eligible to monetize soon. So I have to look for a new hosting site, which is kind of difficult. But anyways, that's why I might be on Podbean soon because I'm working towards that. So keep listening, keep sharing, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye.